from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta. Welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Our first scripture lesson is from Psalm 121. Hear God's promise for you and for me again this morning. I lift up mine eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. He who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time on and forevermore. Amen. Our second text is from the Gospel of Luke, the 10th chapter, verses 25 through 37. One of the most famous pieces of Scripture, one of the most told stories of parables of Jesus, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And as we listen to it this morning, may we do so with fresh ears, see it with fresh eyes. And I really want to encourage us as we hear this text read again, uh, to think about what it's like to walk hard and dangerous roads. The road described here in Luke 10 is the road between Jerusalem and Jericho. Can we think about this road, what it might look like, and may it be for us this morning a metaphor for the roads that we walk, the hard roads that, that we pursue, that we travel down in our lives. Just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Rabbi, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? The man answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to the man, you've given the right answer. Do this and you'll live. But wanting to justify himself, the lawyer asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to that place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think 
was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers. He said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, break open this old, old word afresh to us this day so that we would be a different people than those who came into this sacred space this morning, even to be more like your son, Jesus the Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Dr. Robert Uzo is a globally recognized surgical oncologist. Uh, Following the completion of his medical degree from Cornell, he did residencies at Sloan Kettering and New York Hospital. He did fellowships at the Cleveland Clinic. He's now the the chair of surgery at Fox Chase Cancer Center in Philadelphia, and he's a professor of surgery at Temple University, and this is the context that I met him in. See, following a diagnosis of clear cell renal cell carcinoma 10 years ago, a cancer which manifests in my body as a nine centimeter softball mass growing on my right kidney, Katie and I went through that long and arduous process of interviewing doctors, of interviewing oncologists to get their opinion, to get their take on what would be the best course of action and treatment for my particular cancer. Many of you know exactly what that gauntlet is like. Many of you know what it's like to to all of a sudden go into interview mode once you've learned of a diagnosis or once a loved one has been diagnosed. You, You start to figure out what kind of questions you need to ask. You talk to other people on how to go about this. And and quite frankly, this whole experience of trying to find the doctor who's gonna work on you or on your loved one can be quite an anxious and overwhelming time. It can be very scary. So we were carrying all of that with us as as we went in to meet Dr. Uzo for the first time, and within five minutes, I knew he was gonna be my guy. I knew it. The way he spoke, the numerous data points he spouted off from memory, his countless hours in laboratories and research carols, his over 400 publications, his definitive knowledge about my type of cancer, the vast number of surgeries where organ preservation was a real outcome, and and his intellectual approach to treating this cancer gave both Katie and me real, sure confidence. Perhaps you know someone like Dr. Uzo in your life. Perhaps you are someone like Dr. Uzo motivated by a deep longing and and a craving for knowledge, right? These individuals show up in the world as exceptionally thoughtful and smart and intellectual people. And when these individuals are at their very best, when they are hitting their peak performance, what they have come to know, all that they have observed, all the knowledge they have gained, all the experiences they have experienced, they use it all, they funnel it all to bring good into the world. When they're at their very best, that's what this is all about for them. All of this data collecting, all of this knowledge, all of this research points to bringing something good 
in the world. It's like the professor who has spent a lifetime dedicated to a very nuanced topic so that when they meet with students who also share a similar passion for this very nuanced topic, this professor may pour their life into their students. It's like the auto mechanic who's constantly watching YouTube videos on cars they've never worked on before or reading manuals, maintenance journals, and books to, to learn the nuances of a, of a 1967 Ford so that when they see the 1967 Ford, they know exactly how to work on it. It's like the teacher who, who can't get enough professional development because they want to be ready to serve their students and all the changing needs the 21st century classroom presents. It's like the engineer, right, who has been charged uh, with the supervision of a project and they've worked every angle and they've come up with every potential problem. They know what can go wrong and they've created every potential solution for the work to which they've been charged. It's like a therapist who, who spends time reading journal articles and, and at conferences so they may bring better mental care, health care to their clients. It's like even like a financial analyst, right, who is, who's always got the ticker on the TV, right, who's constantly keeping abreast of what the market is doing, is consuming data point after data point just so that they're sure that they're bringing to their clients the best possible margins. Right, in each of these examples, knowledge is pursued to solve problems. Observations are made, investigations are had. This accumulation of knowledge, the intellect grows to solve problems and at the very best brings good beyond the one who carries it all. Right, that somehow in some way, these folks who are pursuing this knowledge, they wanna do good in the world with it. Well, we're now in the fifth week of our, our sermon series called Human Desire and Divine Intention. We've already considered uh, the God-endowed desires to be loved, to be valuable, and to be authentic. We're talking about these desires that make us fully human. We've said throughout the, the weeks of this series that, that these desires, while God has given them in a very pure way, can become distorted. They can become malformed. And as I've said each and every week, when these desires become distorted, bad stuff happens in our lives. Bad stuff happens in the life of the world. And so we need an intervention of sorts. We need the gospel to speak into our life in such a way to reshape these desires so they may align with God's purposes and God's intentions for our life and for the life of the world. So we're moving on now to the fourth desire, and it's the desire to be competent. It's the desire to be competent. I'd like to suggest to you that the Dr. Uzos of the world and the Dr. Uzos that are living inside of us, that life, that way of being human, that way of showing up in the world is motivated by a deep desire to be competent. That God has etched on our minds this aspiration and it shows up in the world as a craving for knowledge as a craving for experiences, as a craving for uh, observations and, 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 and a growing intellect so that when we walk, metaphorically speaking, the road from Jerusalem to Jericho will have exactly what we need to travel that way. God has given us brains. God has given us minds 
to make us more capable than any other creature in the created order. We observe, we want to know, we want to accumulate knowledge so that we can be competent to face whatever we need to face on the roads that we walk in life. That's the desire in our minds, the desire to be competent so that we will be ready to face every challenge and every opportunity that comes. It's interesting to me that the desire to be competent, I think, is actually embedded in the mind of our religious tradition. It's actually embedded in the heart of our brand of Christianity. We're part of what's known as the Reformed tradition. It's a tradition that originated in 16th century Europe. And our tradition has always emphasized what historian John Leith Leith calls the life of the mind in service to God. The life of the mind in service to God. At core in this conviction is the idea that our intellect and our investigations, our knowledge and our observations can actually serve God's purposes. That what we learn in the world and for the world, all of these observations, all of these experiences can be utilized to serve God's purposes. Leith writes about our tradition's value of knowledge and the intellectual life, the life of the mind in this particular way. He says, wherever the Reformed community went, it established schools alongside of the churches. Thus, from the beginning, the Reformed sponsored learning as a Christian duty. They placed value on the skills of language, reading, writing, and speaking. They also prized clarity, logic, and precision in mental procedure. He goes on to say, they valued the ability to analyze a problem and to formulate an answer so that the sermon was an intellectual exercise and a mental discipline that had significant cultural impact. Presbyterians have often been playfully dubbed the frozen chosen, and for good reason. Our way of being Christian at times has lacked heart. It's lacked feeling. It's lacked a little bit of emotion. But we have never lacked for zeal. We've never lacked for a zeal for knowledge for a desire, for intellectual growth, for striving to understand the, word, the world rather in theological ways. We need to work on the heart stuff from time to time. But the head stuff, it's part of our DNA. We're formed as Christians in this particular tradition to think theologically about our place in the world and what God is doing in and for the world. We really do believe that, that, that the intellect God gave us is a gift, that our minds are a gift to process the world so that we can be competent at being faithful in it, so that we can fully realize our call through this life of the mind in service to God. We can realize our call to fulfill God's intention in the life of the world. But like any, any desire, right, the desire to be competent can also become distorted. It can also become malformed. And, and I think this malformation begins to take place in a confusion of sorts of why we go after knowledge in the first place. Why is it that we pursue the life of the mind in service to God? Because the, the Reformed tradition teaches us that, that the life of the mind in service to God uh, exists so that, that what we learn and accumulate, what we experience, may be shared for the sake of human flourishing, 
to the world is a better place. We gain knowledge, we grow in knowledge so that we can help make the world a better place to live. So it becomes more faithful. But what gets distorted sometimes is what I would say is that the telos of knowledge. This is the telos of knowledge. This is the telos of any intellectual, intellectual pursuit to bring about change, to bring about good in the world. But we begin to become confused as to why we go after knowledge experiences in the first place. One reason it becomes distorted is in our scarcity mentality. So many of us think scarcity is about our stuff. The scarcity mentality is about our possessions. It's about our money. It can also be about our knowledge. It can also be about what we've experienced. It can also be about what we have observed to navigate our way in the world when we could share it with somebody else to help them navigate the road from uh, Jerusalem to Jericho, and yet we hoard it. We hold it. We don't share it. Another reason that this becomes misguided, I think, is that we've come to believe that we are totally and absolutely on our own, that we have to fend for ourselves. We have to be completely self-made and self-reliant. And both of these misguided reasons of why we would pursue knowledge actually are beset by the sin of greed. What happens in someone's life when they become convinced that, that, we, have to, that we have to hold on to these things for ourselves is that, is that we will begin to withdraw. We'll begin to remove ourselves because there's not enough to go around. There's not enough knowledge. There's not enough experience. There aren't enough resources to help everybody who's on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. And so the one who wants to be competent, who pursues knowledge, when it begins to become misguided, they'll begin to hold on to that knowledge, to hoard that experience and not share their life with others. And then it trickles down even more emotionally in relationships. We will hold ourselves back believing in this mantra. The world demands too much of me and gives to me too little. Some of you will resonate with that mantra. Some of you live by that mantra. The world demands too much of me and gives too little to me. And this distortion, it didn't, doesn't just happen overnight. It's actually one that, that I think can begin in childhood, right? For some of us, we grew up in a household with, with a deeply enmeshed parent who was asking far too much of us to give us something that we could never give them. Asking a child to give something that maybe only an adult could give emotionally, spiritually to that parent. And they begin, the child begins to read the world through the lens of that relationship with their parent. And they begin to think that the world always will want more than I can give it. Also, perhaps, there's a, there's a converse side. Maybe some of us have grown up in households where we had parents who were totally disengaged who weren't involved in our life. And, and we basically learned that the, the world was a lonely place and that we have to fend for ourselves. We'd have to raise ourselves. So what happens here? Follow me. What happens is, is that the desire to be competent, which is expressed in this pursuit of knowledge and understanding so we can meet the challenges of the road, it becomes self-serving. People are going to either ask too much of me or I'm never going to find any help because I'm all by myself. Either way, I have to accumulate knowledge, I have to accumulate experience for both self-preservation and self-reliance. 
And all this good, this good desire to be competent so we can be a blessing to the world can get so badly distorted that it becomes self-centered. We hoard and we, we become greedy because we think the world asks too much of us and it gives us too little. And, and here's what I'd like to do as we come to the finish line of this sermon. I want to use the, the parable of the Good Samaritan as a way to understand in a deeper way this desire to be competent and the way it, it can become so badly distorted. Right, in Jesus' parable, you all know this story. There's three men who come upon someone who is beaten by robbers and left for dead on the side of the road. And yet, only one of the three of the men acts neighborly toward the desperate man. And so here's what I would invite you to do. I want you to read this text perhaps a little different, with a little different lens. I want us to look at the Good Samaritan as someone who really understands their desire to be competent, as their desire to be competent. The, the Good Samaritan, right, on paper knows exactly what to do. The Good Samaritan has the knowledge to do what needs to be done for the good of the desperate man. And even though Jesus says that it's his heart that was moved with pity, it's actually his intellect that saves the day. It's actually his mind in action that brings healing to this man's life, right? Because here's something that we know about this man. He knows biology. He knows a little bit of healthcare. What does Jesus say? He said, he cleaned the man's wounds with oil and wine to sterilize them and wraps them in bandages. He knows a little bit of healthcare. Maybe he had an EMS course somewhere along the line. He knows something about the human body and he applies that knowledge for the man's healing. He then knows that he needs to be transported to a place where he can can safely heal. So he puts him on his animal and he takes him to the inn. Not only does he know the location of the inn, he knows exactly how to get there with safe passage. On this treacherous road from Jerusalem to Jericho, he knows the way to go. He knows who are friends and allies. He knows something about transportation and logistics and he puts it to good work, to good use to help this man recover. Finally, he gets to the end and he knows about economics. He knows what it's gonna cost. So not only does he put some money up front, he knows he has to go get some more money to help pay for the recuperation of this man. You see, there's a way to interpret this text that sees the Good Samaritan as completely and utterly competent. As someone who knows exactly what to do and actually does it. This is the life of the mind in service to God. But then you come to the Levite and the priest. And might we say that these two are also very competent, right? Educated. These are folks who have a certain standing in the, in the social strata of their environment. Educated, probably have a little bit of money, probably are well prepared for the trip from Jerusalem to Jericho. And we're often told, we've often been told, and I think there is a lot of truth to this interpretation, they don't want to go near the guy because they want to obey priestly law. They want to keep everything in decency and in order so they don't want to go near this beaten man. But perhaps there's another reason they don't want to go. Perhaps they think, this is going to cost me too much. I mean, I know how to take care of him. I know I have the resources to do it. But it's asking 
too much of me. I can't put myself out there. I, I may need my animal for later. I may need my money for later. And so they detach. And I love this part of the story. They literally walk on the other side of the road. They're on the other side of the road. They're competent. They have the knowledge. They have the experience. They can bring healing to this man's life, but they detach from him. And they walk on the other side of the road. They keep to themselves, literally. And perhaps one of the greatest fears for them would have come in the prospect in helping this guy that the same fate that met this man at the hand of robbers might be the one that I receive. They don't want to imagine themselves lying there half dead in a ditch. To be in that position is a position where they really need help, where they couldn't do it on their own, and that would be untenable. If I give these resources away, if I find myself on the side of the road, who's going to help me? How am I going to make my way? You see, I'm convinced that there are people who, metaphorically speaking, never ever want to be in the position of being left half dead on the side of the road. Of course, literally, nobody ever wants to be in that position. But metaphorically, many of us don't want to be in positions where we need help. Many of us don't want to be in positions where we need help. Some of us have a very hard time praying the prayer that Katie prayed in Psalm 121. I lift my eyes to the mountains. From where will my help come? There are some of us who are convinced that our help comes nowhere else but ourselves. In the accumulation of knowledge, in intellect, in experiences. Because when I'm on that road from Jerusalem to Jericho, there is nobody who's going to help me. And when you are vulnerable, right, and you know this in your life, when you're vulnerable, when, you're, when you take emotional risks, when you put yourself out there in relationships, when you choose, make a decision to go serve somebody, when you seek to be a blessing in and for the world, there's always a chance on that road that you're going to get beaten up. And for some of us, we cannot imagine putting ourselves out there if that may be our experience. There's always a chance that we're going to need some help. And here's the good news, and I close with this. Here's the good news of the psalm. The good news of the psalm is that God is our help. That we walk the road from Jerusalem to Jericho not alone, not without any resources. God is our help. We don't do this by ourselves. And God has given us God's very spirit. And the way God's spirit shows up most presently, I believe, is through the people of God, is through the church. We just went through a, a, a sad experience with, with a, a couple in this church having to bury their adult daughter. And, and the heartache and the hardship of that moment and the ways in which the church came around them and was their help and, and bearing witness that God was their help in this time. And because God is our help on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, because God is our help, here's, here's a bit of freedom for us. We can be help too. We can take all our knowledge, we can take all our observations, we can take all our intellect, we can take all our competencies and we can actually cross the street. Do you follow me? We can have all of that, and we can cross the street and move to the brokenhearted and move towards those who are beaten on the side of the road and move towards those who are hungry, move towards those who have been excluded, move towards those who have been isolated. 
We have the intellectual capacity and the experiences and knowledge to bring healing into the world, but do we have the moral courage to go across the street, to move toward the one? For God is our help, and, and God will give us whatever we need on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. We're not going to run out of God's, goods, God's good gifts. We have exactly what we need to bring healing and wholeness into the world so that our competencies, our gifts, our skills, our mind may align with God's intention to put the world to rights. May it be so for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the world in our lives and in the life of this church and all of God's people say, amen.